All right, folks, uh, I don't know where the rest of the people are, but time is flying by as I'm looking at the clock. It's just flying. Yeah. So the rapture will get here a little earlier than we anticipated, I imagine. So, yeah. Anyways, my efforts are going to be to try to finish as much as I can on the, the subject of the great value of reconciliation. So let's begin with prayer, and then we'll, we'll dig in. Well, gracious Heavenly Father, what a joy it is to meet with my brothers and sisters in Christ on a Sunday morning and to later on join them in worshiping you and singing praises to your perfection, your perfect character, and the great things that you have done, and hearing again from the Word of God and the Gospel of John. So this is a great morning that we have planned for us. Uh, on this particular area, Lord, I would pray for all of us that we would have the same sort of value for reconciliation, the priority that you place on reconciliation, so that we can be better at it, uh, so that we might instantly pursue those with whom we have fractured a relationship. And so help me today with uh, the wisdom that comes from the word and the clarity of that which comes from the word to speak the word so that all these dear people have a greater understanding and a greater um, uh, ability to apply what they have learned today. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, when we first got together, I told you that there were several necessary steps or components uh, to achieving reconciliation. Oh, before I go any further, my wife reminded me that uh, some nice member in our class has made you a delicious pumpkin kind of cake over there. So please, you can go and get a piece whenever you want and enjoy the, and plus, there's donuts and duct tape. The duct tape is for older people like me because we don't eat them, we just duct tape where they're gonna go. They're gonna go right here. But they're back there too, but then you have that wonderful pumpkin cake. So I, let me encourage you to get that if you will. <clears throat> so there are several components to the matter of reconciliation. Uh, the first one, I've actually found a word. I told you I didn't like the word confrontation, which is mentioned on page two of your notes. I've changed that word in my new notes to communication. That's so much better. What I'm trying to imply is when there is a fracture in a relationship, uh, there's a need for a person-to-person -person encounter in which communication takes place. Uh, remember this about communication, even as I use that term. The goal of communication is not talking or listening. The goal of communication is understanding. You can do a lot of talking. I, when I do marriage counseling, <clears throat> people will say, you know, we talk at each other. It begins with talking and then it ends in yelling and all these other things. And so we're communicating. I said, no, you're not because you wouldn't be here if you were. Because communication is the achieving of understanding. Communication helps you to unearth, for example, the nature of the conflict that brought this relational fracture into being. 
uh, whether it's miscommunication or whether it's misunderstanding or whether you're arguing about a preference issue and not a personal issue, whatever, or a principle issue. So <clears throat> that's really important. Of course, let me show you once again <clears throat> where we get uh, an implication of that. Let me show you that Matthew 24 passage that we keep on returning to. Uh, not Matthew 24, I'm sorry, Matthew 5. I was just talking to someone about Matthew 24. That's why I have it on my mind. Matthew chapter 5. And I want us to look at that section in verse 23 and 24. He says, therefore, if you are presenting your offering at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you. In other words, your brother senses that you have offended him with some sort of sinful behavior. He says in 24, leave your offering, therefore, before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and present your offering. So what the, the Lord is saying is, uh, before you are religious, I need you to be right with people whom uh, you perhaps have offended. So the best thing you can do is leave your offering and go to them. And implied in that is he wants you to go and he wants you to talk about the situation. He wants you to be able to work it out. Reconciliation in this manner can only happen when you have communication with you and the other person. Now, I know that some of you may have, in, in conflict situations with other people, you may have had or may have tried uh, communication time and time again, and it just doesn't seem to work out. I, let me just encourage you uh, to continue on. Keep going. There may be circumstances where it's better to call it off, if you know what I mean. The, the conversation is getting heated. Uh, you're finding yourself getting angry. Always remember what James said, the anger of a man does not achieve the righteousness of God. At those points, I, I think it's better to call them off, even in marriage. Uh, I like to refer to it as a time of demilitarizing the situation. Uh, what I mean by that is saying, hey, we need to take a break. We are not getting here anywhere here. I suggest that the two of you go into two different rooms and pray about the circumstance for God to give you wisdom and be able to find some common ground. But it does usually doesn't good when you're in the flesh and you know when you're in the flesh. If you, if you wonder about, well, how do I know I'm in the flesh? Read Galatians chapter 5 uh, uh, verses 19 through 21 or yeah, 21. And it'll talk about the deeds of the flesh. It's going to talk about first sexual sins. It's going to talk about spiritual. But then it's going to talk about social sins, and flesh-driven. And the first one of the first ones it mentions is an outburst of anger. So when you're doing that, you are in the flesh. You can never say, I'm being filled with the Spirit at this time. No, you're not. You're being filled with the flesh. And that usually doesn't help in the process of reconciliation, right? because it's contrary to the purpose of reconciliation, which is to take relationships that have been harmed and to make them right, to do what you need so that your peace and harmony has been returned. So I can't talk about that anymore because I'll never get to the other ones that I... Um, so we mentioned this one. So communication is the word that uh, I was looking for instead of confrontation. Confrontation sounds more like fighting 
and I didn't want to have that part in there. So if you look at the, the next point, which is uh, contrition, we talked about that too. Uh, that's just a fancy word for talking about godly sorrow. In the Roman Catholic Church, they'll tell you that if you can confess your sins, you say, I'm heartily sorry that I have offended God. I'm, I'm, my heart is full of sorrow that I've offended God. So a contrition, uh, or the better word I could have probably chosen, is repentance. Repentance needs to occur. If you are the one who has offended somebody with sin, then you need to repent. Remember we talked about that. Repentance is, uh, by the Greek word, it, it is a radical change of mind that produces a radical change of behavior that usually represents a radical change of heart. So three things are included in that. Repentance is a radical change of mind. It produces a radical change of behavior. And it usually produces a radical change of the heart. In other words, you see, man, I did, I did sin here. I take the full blame. I take the full responsibility. I need to seek forgiveness from that person whom I've harmed. And a lot of times that has to be God produced in people because you and I get very stubborn. <laughs> um, not me so much, but I'm just saying you do. Um, <laughs> but you get so stubborn that you don't want to have that change of mind because you are convinced you are right. And when that happens, the value for getting right is no longer in existence. Now the value is for being right. Do you understand that? The value for getting right, it's been set aside. It's not there anymore. Now I'm going to be right. And I've never heard in all the marriage counseling and other one-on-one -on -one counselings that I've done with people, I've never heard of a relationship being reconciled where, you know, someone says, yeah, uh, I'm not sure I'm really wrong, but he, he beat the tar out of me with his words and convinced me he's right and I'm wrong, but I'm not sure I'm wrong. <laughs> that doesn't work, you know. So you got to be really, really careful. We talked about worldly repentance and we talked about godly repentance. Remember that? It's in your notes. You can read that over again from 2 Corinthians chapter 7. Uh, that's very, very important that you distinguish between the two, that you are discerning enough to understand the difference between godly repentance, worldly repentance. Worldly repentance usually is someone who is um, um, upset about getting caught and doesn't like the consequences and wants to negotiate how you're going to fix this. Uh, but worldly, worldly repentance is not real repentance because it's... It's, it's, um, it's sort of a saying the words, uh, I repent, but in your heart not really having a passion for the restoration of the relationship. Whereas godly repentance is a godly sorrow that produces repentance in your heart where you take full responsibility. Matter of fact, remember the seven signs on the bottom of that page? Four, accept full responsibility for his or her actions. He doesn't say things like, um, well, since you think I've done something wrong, I just want to tell you I'm sorry. That's not, that's not godly repentance because it's saying, okay, I'm tired of this battle between you and I. Uh, you haven't convinced me I've done anything wrong, but since you think I'm wrong, okay, I'm sorry. That is not what you want. You want a radical change of heart 
to take place. Number two, welcomes accountability from others, does not uh, continue in the hurtful behavior of anything associated with it, does not have a defensive attitude about being in the wrong. And by the way, if you are a person who is prideful, these are, these are very difficult things to do, but these are the things that you must do. Uh, does not, uh, five, does not dismiss or downplay hurtful behavior, does not resent doubts about their sincerity or the needs to demonstrate sincerity, especially in cases involving repeated offenses. That's the tough one. Makes restitution where necessary. They make restitution where necessary. Uh, let me tell you a situation where uh, a lady came to my church in Illinois and she said, I have a rather strange request to ask of you. And I said, okay, I didn't know what it would be. She said, uh, when I was uh, lost and unsaved, she said, I worked for the museum uh, of uh, science and industry in Chicago, which is a beautiful, if you've ever been, it's an amazing place. And I worked in the gift shop. And she said, and I was a lost and unsaved person. And as far as I can tell, I stole about $3,000 worth of merchandise and basically have gotten away with it. And I would sell it to other people or give it to other people. And she said, since I've become saved, she said, I have this gnawing feeling that I need to restore that. And I said, okay. I said, now let me explain to you. I wanted to make sure she understood that giving a restoration of that is not uh, going to save you. you know, I wanted to make sure, and she said, oh no, I understand. I understand I'm saved. And I know that my sins have been forgiven past, present, and future but I have this nagging matter of conscience that I need to restore that. And so I, I worked hard and saved up $3,000 and I have a check. And I wonder if you would call uh, the, the folk, the, what's he called, the curator at the museum and tell him that uh, you have this money. I'm almost afraid to go and see him. And I said, well, I think I think you're going to have to see him, you know, and she was really, I said, well, let, let me give the guy a call and see what we can work out. So I can't, I've never done that before, never called a curator of a museum. And so I said, I have an unusual thing to tell you. <laughs> and I told him the story, the whole story, and he said, what? <laughs> I said, yeah, this lady has given me a cashier's check. She wants to give it. Uh, back to the museum. She worked for you. I said, uh, at this point, I cannot give you her name. She hasn't given me permission, uh, but I'm talking to her about the two of you guys meeting together. And he said, I have all of my life. He said, I have never heard of anything like this. So we had a meeting. We went and uh, returned the check, and there was a I guess the CEO guy, the guy who handles the finances, because he's blown away. He doesn't know what to do with it. <laughs> you know, he's got this extra check now. Uh, you know, it's, so he designated it as a gift, and the other guy was arguing with him whether it's a gift or you know, whatever was going on. But anyways, the point he made to me, he says, whatever you're teaching at your church, you need to continue to do it. And I said, well, it's not so much that. I said, I said this is what Jesus does when a person is now, he was a stone evolutionist to the max, you know. Everything, 
His God was science. That's why he's the curator of the Museum of Science and Industry. But I had an opportunity through that to share it. But here was a person who made restitution, who really felt they were forgiven. They were saved. They knew that this giving back was not going to add to their salvation, but they couldn't live in their own conscience with this mindset that they took this money and never restored it. Uh, so that's what restitution may look like. Uh, I just wanted to tell you that and give you that story. Then uh, on, on page five, there's confession. And we talked about that. Confession on page five is when you um, find yourself, because of the Greek word homologeo means to be of the same mind, or put it this way, to be in agreement with God in terms of what he's described as sin. So when you're confessing, you're saying, Heavenly Father, I am in full agreement. You're not, you're not making any excuses for yourself at all. You're not trying to explain the circumstances of your sin to an omniscient God. What a waste of time. Uh, he already knows the circumstances that got you into the situation of sinning. So don't try to, you know, I, I wouldn't have sinned, uh, but, you know, she took me to Walmart. I didn't want to go to Walmart. Then after that, she went to Hobby Lobby, and that was the end, and I had an outburst of anger. Please forgive me. Uh, those kind of excuses you're making, although those might, uh, no, no, I won't want to do that. Uh, um, you, you don't do that. You just simply say, Lord, I have an outburst of anger, and I know that the righteousness of God is not achieved by my anger. Please uh, forgive me, and he will. That's the interesting thing about Scripture. Someone read for us Proverbs 28:13, where we're talking about this. Right. So it's telling you prosper there is more than just don't think of just as in terms of material, material goods. Uh, it's talking about life in general, all that is good about life happening in your life. That's what that prosperous is. And he's saying you're, you're just not you're not in the pathway of that goodness of life when you're harboring sin in your heart. In Psalm 66, it says, I think it's 66, 12. Someone may want to look up that. But I, I think what that says there is that if you harbor sin in your heart, God will not hear you. Um, if you're harboring sin in your heart, he will not hear you. Or you're, you're protecting sin because you like it and you don't want to, you want to continue in it. So here, confession is just simply coming to agreement. First John um, 1 9 says that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, what does real confession look like? I've got some passages there on page five under that question. What does real confession involve? And let's see if we could pick up some of the things that we consider to be essential components of real confession. Uh, let me start with Psalm 51. 
Take your Bible and look at Psalm 51. This is a very interesting psalm. This is the psalm of confession uh, written by King David after Nathan confronted him and he came to the realization that he was an adulterer and he was complicit in murder and he was a deceiver. So he's committed adultery. By the way, Adultery is never a sin that's done in isolation. It always involves deception and all kinds of other things that go along with it. So there's this whole package of sin that, uh, that we have in King David's life. And Nathan has confronted him. Uh, he has had a U-turn in his thinking. Uh, he has decided that he needs to confess it and write it out. So look at Psalm 51, verse 1. Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the greatness of your compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me against you and you only. I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. So what do you see as essential components in this matter of uh, confession? Just from those verses, what do you see that's really important? Do you see any, any thing about David saying, look at, I'm the king of Israel. I have done so many great things for you, Lord. No, what is he saying? What's his first words? Be yeah. Be gracious or, or please extend your divine favor to me. Meaning I, I haven't done anything meritorious whatsoever. I'm here because I've sinned. So be, be gracious to me, God, according to your loving kindness. He, confession is, should always be driven, if you want to mark a point down, your confession of sin must be driven by your confidence in the character of God. That my God is a forgiving God. My God is a merciful God. My God is a gracious God. My God is a kind God. So why would I want to harbor my sin? Why, why would I not want to go before him? If I go before him, his, his character is triggered. If you confess your sins, that's your job. What's next? It's all the rest is God's part. If you for confess your sins, he is what? Faithful and just to forgive you of your sins. So in other words, confession needs to be made with a recognition that you have absolute confidence in the perfections of God. And that's what he's saying. Be gracious to me according to your loving kindness. He mentions a couple of attributes of God right from the beginning. According to the greatness of your compassion. Compassion is um, not only uh, unmerited uh, mercy or kindness directed toward a person. Compassion is God not treating you as your sins deserve. So he's saying, I, I need that. I need, I need compassion. Um, now, in, in verse uh, 
4, when you look at verse 4, would, what about Bathsheba? What about her husband? What about the baby that died eight days after he was born? Uh, yet, what does he say in verse 4? Against you only have I sinned. In other words, he notices that the first thing, the horrible nature of his sin, is that it's an offense to God. Yes, he's also offended her husband. I <laughs> had him killed. Sad thing is he actually had some of uh, the elite soldiers that went with the front line with the husband killed as well. They're all a part of the deception. This is all a part of the, the problem with the immorality that led to murder and deception and all the other things. Yeah, Dave. So I've always, I've always had trouble with that. that against you only have I sinned. It, it is clear, like you say, he has sinned against many people. Yes. So I don't understand that. Yeah. What I would say to you, Dave, is that I did too. Matter of fact, when I first studied that, I think the front line of the damage of your sin is always God. Right. So he's beginning with that. That is not to say, uh, I don't even know who he, I, I don't, you know, we don't have a record whether he went home to Bathsheba and say, sit down, dear, I've got to talk to you, you know, and tell you all the things that I've done wrong or acknowledge everything I've done wrong. But he is right in saying that. And I think that's good because that the front line of our sin, people are often caught in the shrapnel of our sin. But the front one who is offended is a holy God. He's always offended by our sin. It's the only part. That's right. If he had just said against you, have I sinned? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, my best answer to that one would be that he's acknowledging the first person who was offended by their sin. That does not mean necessarily that he didn't acknowledge the sin that he committed to other people. And by the way, his life, uh, <laughs> his life after this was pretty tragic. And by the way, that reminds me that when you confess your sins, God does not promise to deliver you from the consequence of your sins. So he suffered the terrible consequences. His family really suffered a lot. Uh, yeah, Diane. Um, could it be that God's standards that God created, yeah. these precepts, laws, commandments, the way to live? And, yeah. I mean, Bathsheba didn't create that, and Uriah didn't create yeah. it. I yeah. just heard that at one time, and I Right. When you come across passages like this that are sometimes difficult to understand, always remember to interpret the implicit by the explicit in Scripture. Scripture explicitly says, confess your sins one to another. Yeah. Do you know what I'm saying? So it's not a contradiction that you only confess them to God, but as you look through Scripture, you actually find people that are confessing their sins to others, and the exhortation is to do that. So when I take, it's a principle of biblical interpretation 
called the synoptic principle. In other words, you gather everything that the Bible says about a topic and you understand the topic based upon everything it says, not just an individual verse. For example, if I was in the book of Malachi and I read, God hates divorce, and I developed a theology that there is no room for divorce whatsoever in the life of a believer, well, I would be forgetting what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 19, where he said, if there is marital unfaithfulness, then there's the, you know, the allowance for divorce. You understand? So in other words, I must always interpret what's implied by what is explicitly stated. Because sometimes what is implied, like for example, if I imply from this verse, well, I only have to confess my sins to God. I'm not true and I'm not right. Because the rest of the Bible says I have to. I have to confess my sins to other people. But anyways, it's a great question. Yes. Just looking at the word and like on Blue Letter Bible, like in the Hebrew. Yeah. And it kind of strong in his definition of it talks about like this word kind of being used to describe the chief of a city or like the trunk of a tree or the trunk of a body and how that's the center thing, but from it stems many things. Mm-hmm. So, like, it, I think that helps me kind of understand yeah. that mm-hmm. better is, like, you are the source that I need to go to, yeah. to before I can begin. Before I can patch up the other yeah. problems, yeah. The word talks about it being like a trunk or the foundation or the primary one. <clears throat> and once I can handle that, then I can handle the, 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 the collateral damage, you know. So, yeah, that's good. I'm sorry. Yeah. Uh, again, it's a good thing that the legal system does not criminalize sin. Otherwise, if we criminalize sin or adultery is punishable by our legal system, that would be all dead. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But what I'm saying is, uh, yes, the sin, I think, is, as you said, is an affront to God. Mm-hmm. But there is, on our part, restitution is required, like in the case of Zacchaeus. Mm-hmm. You know, he said, look. Yes. Mm-hmm. To make up for that. Mm-hmm. And I think I think it was David also who invited Bathsheba to, to, to his court mm-hmm. and, and take care. In fact, remember that, that scene when you know the son died? Mm-hmm. And so it was in his court that uh, all these things happened, but as you said, mm-hmm. the consequences of sin is far reaching. It is. Even more I think punitive than mm-hmm. what our system And and uh, I've said this before to the church in the past. that always remember the thing that makes sin so attractive at first is you see it without the consequences. He just saw a beautiful woman taking a bath and then his libido was kicked in and his passions were kicked in and if he would have known the consequences of his sin, I think that may have applied the brakes (laughs) And that's the, that's the problem. A lot of people don't, they jump in because they're attracted by the immediate benefit or perceived benefit of sin, when in fact the consequences are horrible. And of course, this is something he knew from firsthand experience. Um, yes? Um, 
They could have, what? I'm sorry. Yeah. 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 Yeah, right. Yeah. And there are consequences to those actions, and he understood that. Now, what I'm going to ask you to do, simply because I am so uh, behind time here, I want you to look at those passages on your own and fill out what you learn about confession. The ones in the red there, you know, green says, what does it, what does real confession involve? And, uh, and then the, the passages, and I'm, I have to do that because they only give me six weeks. I'm, I think, is this the fourth week? <laughs> I don't know what happens. You guys talk way too much. <laughs> that's the pro- no, that's not the problem. It's me. I, I knew that. Um, I have this passion that overwhelms me. I want you to know so much about this with clarity that I try to give it to you all at one time. And that's why I am the fa- I'm famous at New Community Church for the many, many, many parts to my sermons. Matter of fact, when I retired, I still had four parts to go with the sermon I was preaching, but I wasn't able to, <laughs> wasn't able to do that. Notice the little sentence under, below. It's important to keep in mind that there are plenty of explanations for why you sin, but no excuse. Keep that in mind because you're going to try to explain away if she didn't say, if he didn't, and and all these other things, if this didn't happen, and they didn't do what they said they were going to do, and all of this stuff comes into play. And listen, when you violate the standards of God, there is no excuse. There's no worthy excuse. You've sinned. Take responsibility. Confession is that. It's taking full responsibility. I have sinned. I agree with you, God. What I did was stepped beyond your will. Now, let's get into forgiveness. (laughs) There's no way, and I'm going to finish it all, but um, forgiveness is, uh, would you believe forgiveness is one of the hot issues of... um, Uh, disagreement on forgiveness in the scripture. And so I'm going to try to help you to understand hopefully just what it says. Well, you got some true and false questions there. Uh, Let's just kind of run through them. Um, True is whether is it true or false. True forgiveness is authenticated by a feeling of being forgiven. What do you think? False. False. Yeah, it's, it's nice if you have a feeling, but that's not what constitutes forgiveness. Uh, if, if you confess your sins, he's faith, you do, that's your part. He's faithful and righteous to forgive your sins. And at that moment, you are forgiven. If your feelings don't feel that, they need to catch up with the truth because you're going to fall into another sin, the sin of unbelief. Do you understand? You just don't believe what the scripture says because you don't have a feeling of forgiveness. So it's important that you keep in mind that. Number two, forgiveness occurs properly only when certain conditions are met. What do you think? Did I bring my book? True. Well, that's what I'm saying. <laughs> that's why. Uh, we'll get to this. We'll show you um, what, what we mean by that. 
Number three, most Christian pastors and counselors agree about what forgiveness is and how it should take place. False, no. I mean, uh, with the intrusion of, uh, or the blend of secular psychology into Christianity, one of the victims of that was this whole topic of forgiveness. And we'll talk about that as we go on. Number four, Jesus said little about how people should resolve interpersonal conflict. False, that's just not true. Um, five, a willingness to forgive is a test of whether a person will go to heaven when he or she dies. What do you think? Okay, that's good. But I'm going to show you a couple of passages that might shake you up. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I tend to agree with you. It's false. You don't. The only way you get to heaven is by faith and faith alone and the death and resurrection of Christ. But Jesus made a few statements where Bible scholars on the other side say, wait a minute. He said, for example, that if you don't forgive your brother, neither will the Father forgive you. He says that in, in Matthew chapter 6. So we'll have to talk about that and what that means if we get a chance. Um, all right. Uh, number six, there are times when it's wrong to forgive. <laughs> what did you say, Cindy? <laughs> I want her to take the blame on this. <laughs> True, if there's been no repentance. Okay, you're right. These, you should write, really matter of fact, this is recorded with me saying you're right. Okay. <laughs> 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 that doesn't mean that that you have to be wrong now because I said you're right. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, this is why we need to try to understand this whole matter. It's so critical in reconciliation. You know, you, you have to have that moment when a person is forgiven. So what does it mean to be forgiven? The word forgiven in the original language uh, is, it conveys the idea, I'm reading on that next segment there, of releasing someone from a debt that could be justly extracted from them. It is a formal release from an obligation or a debt, especially understood as the debt of sin. So when you really are forgiving a person, you're releasing them. The word, really, the primary word in the Greek language means that it's a releasing, it's a setting free from a debt or a penalty. And even if whatever made that sin occur, whatever the consequences or, or the products of that sin are, you're not looking for the full restitution of that. At that moment, you're forgiving them, you're releasing them. Um, I, I remember I had, uh, and that's the difference between forgiveness and justice. I had a man, a, a couple, a second marriage. They had a 19-year-old who was into drugs. Um, it was her child, not his. And they were just fighting like cats and dogs about the child or the a young adult son. Uh, he stole money uh, from his stepfather. Uh, stole a number of things, sold them, bought drugs, all that stuff. And so he told his wife, I don't want you to ever give any money whatsoever to him. He's a thief. 
and you're not helping them by doing that. Well, she's a mother, and birthday comes around. She has no money because he won't allow her to have any money. So she hocks her wedding ring. Now, I know mother love is strong, but that was a pretty bad decision. So guess what? They're in my office. So this is why I'm saying don't think of the pastorate in a romantic way. <laughs> Sometimes you have that. And so he said to me, I will forgive her if she does these five things. Gets back my ring, calls her relatives and tells them all these things she's been saying about me are not true. Puts out her son from the house. He can't be with them anymore. It was like five different things. His name was Bob, and I said, Bob, so you're really not interested in forgiveness. Oh, no, I will forgive her. I said, no, you're not interested. You're interested in justice. You want everything to be as it was before the event occurred. I said, aren't you happy, Bob, that Jesus doesn't say, I will forgive you. But here is the 1,325 things I want you to do before I extend the forgiveness to you. Because you have offended him, I'm sure, at least that much. See, there's a difference between that. Forgiveness releases. Now, restitution, we're going to talk about. We're going to get to that. But forgiveness releases the person. And the reason that you release a person from their sin debt against you is because, listen to this, you, no person on planet Earth has ever offended you as much as you offended God. Right? And when you repented of your sins and you believed in Christ, he forgave you of all your sins, past, present, and future. And he says to you, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So if, if you want justice and you're calling it forgiveness, you, my friend, have forgotten the extent to which you have been forgiven. You understand that? I want to show you from Matthew chapter 18. <clears throat> yes, Reuben, go ahead. Uh, so forgiveness can be done two ways. It can be with two people, or it can be done with one. Two people means one is made, you know, I've confessed their sins and stuff, and the other one forgave them. The other one can be, this person did you wrong, never made it up, but yet you go ahead and forgave them. Mm -hmm. So I guess my question is, is it's not that a, a matter has to be met for forgiveness. It's just, it's you making a decision to forgive because God forgave me. Yes, right. I'm making a decision to forgive. There may be restitution, you know, where... But it can go, you know, because, again, you're going to see the pattern that established for you in the Bible is that you are to forgive others as Christ has forgiven you. 
So it's been established. Forgiveness, the pattern of forgiveness has been established by our Lord. That's what we're going to look into. But there may be occasions where things can be restored to some extent. Um, things can be, sometimes privileges are not. We'll, we'll get into that. I mean, uh, I'm of the opinion, I think I said this last week, that if I were to be unfaithful to Cindy, even after I've repented and gotten her forgiveness, I think it would be a long time before I could ever enter the pulpit or stand here and teach you again. Because I've lost the teachability of the people with a major hypocritical act. You see what I'm saying? So the whole teacher-student process may be interrupted by my sin, that one in particular. And so sometimes that happens, and that's why some men who have committed a sin like that have dropped out. Although in one case, I met with a pastor who committed that sin several times, and he still didn't drop out, and his church kept him in the office. That I don't understand. Go ahead. Yeah. Are you also supposed to be saying anything about Because Well, sometimes it does, Tina. Sometimes, but not always. You know, sometimes people will sin against you without you having committed a sin. Sometimes. Sometimes both of you have committed sins and your relationship is in that order. Uh, a lot of times, because in the progression of the relationship, sinful things can be done. I can call you on the phone and just explode and call you all kinds of terrible names and everything. Now, you may have been the one who did the sinning, you know, initially, but my reaction now has led me into sin. And in that case, both of us need to confess. Now, I just may have done nothing and you have sinned. And so it's not me forgiving myself or the Bible really doesn't talk about forgiving yourself. Does the Bible talk about asking when there is an argument or a quarrel or a disagreement and one person thinks, oh, you sinned against me, and the other person thinks, no, you sinned against me. Isn't, I was trying to find it in Scripture, isn't there something that says we need to both, we've both offended God, and we go to our brother and say, please forgive me. Yeah, absolutely, if that's true, if that's the true situation where you two people in conflict have added to their sinful behavior. In other words, they were in conflict where maybe only one person in a sinful act caused that conflict. But in the progression of the conflict, other sinful behaviors took over. And then that way you have to deal with all that. So that's what it's about. Let me show you Matthew 18 because, again, I'm amazed at how much time flies by here. Um, uh, the Lord just talked to about the matter of uh, what you call church discipline, um, verses 18, uh, 15 through 20. And then 21, then Peter came and said to him, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgiven him? Up to seven times? Now the Pharisee said you only have to forgive somebody up to three times. So actually Peter's being generous. <laughs> He's saying, you know, is it up to seven times? 
Verse 22, Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. How much is that, you mathematicians? How ma how, no mathematicians are here, huh? What is it? 490. Yeah, 490. Now, he didn't mean, listen, if you have a friend who's offended you 490 times, <laughs> I, I think you should look for a new friend. <laughs> but, but the point is, he's speaking in a hyperbolic, hyperbolic way because he wants to make the point. It's an it's a intended exaggeration. You, there's no limit. There's no end. If a person asks to be forgiven, you need to forgive them. And then he gives the reason in the parable that he talks about. Uh, verse 23, for this reason, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. And when he began to settle them, one who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. That's like owing somebody millions of dollars, just so you know. It's a debt that you can't manage. It's beyond your ability to pay it. Uh, verse 25, but since he did not have the means to repay, that's why I know it's beyond his ability, his Lord commanded him to be sold along with his wife and children and all that he had and repayment be made. There were several different ways that, you know, most of the people like in the city of Rome were slaves. And there was a number of different ways that people became slaves. One was through uh, Roman conquering of nations and they would take people. But perhaps in those days, the biggest ways that people became slaves is by owing someone a debt they couldn't pay. Because according to the law, you could put them in debtor's prison or you could take them and their in your family, their family, so that they would work generally on your agricultural piece of property and so that they might be able to pay back the debt and then be set free. Or they could be brought to the marketplace. If you are a wealthy person and you want to get back some of your capital and you could take them and sell them. You go up on a platform and they didn't need to keep the families together. They just sold people because they had debts to pay and could not pay them. I'm of the opinion we should restore that because none of you would have to worry anymore about debt collectors. <laughs> uh, yeah, in other words, what it was is a severe consequence for going beyond your capacity to pay a debt back. It was a severe consequence. So he's talking about that sort of situation. Uh, in scripture, the biggest thing that could ever happen to you is that if you were in the slave market, if someone would redeem you, what does that mean? If they would pay the debt that secured your freedom. And that's why Paul uses that analogy about you and I, that we were in the slave market of sin. We were in bondage and there was no way to get out of it. We, we owed a debt we could not pay. And then Christ paid the debt. He redeemed you and set you free. So it comes from the, this whole illustration of what, what you're seeing in this parable, this kind of thing happening. Uh, verse 26, 
he didn't have the means to pay. Verse 25, 26. So the slave fell to the ground, prostrated himself before him, saying, have patience with me. I will repay you everything. And the Lord of that slave felt compassion and he released him and forgave him the debt. Whoa. Imagine how you would feel if you uh, went to your bank to pay your mortgage payment and they said, we release you. <laughs> That'd be awesome. <laughs> That'd be awesome. <laughs> You're free. Well, I mean, this guy had like millions of dollars that he owed and, and the king said, okay, I see, I see in you a heart that wants to pay, would pay, if you could pay, but you can't. And so I'll set you free. Now you would have thought he'd been rejoicing for years to come, right? You know, verse 28, but the slave went out and found one of his fellow slaves who owed him a hundred denarii, a day's pay, day's worth of pay. And so he owed him a hundred denarii. He seized him and began to choke him, saying, pay back what you owe. So his fellow slaves fell to the ground and began to plead with him, saying, have patience with me. I will repay you the very same thing he said to the king. His fellow slave said to him, verse 30, but he was unwilling and he went and threw him in prison until he should pay back what he was owed. So he just incarcerated this person for the debt of a day's wages that he owed after he had been released from a debt that was beyond his capacity to pay. Verse 31, so when his fellow slaves saw what had happened, they were deeply grieved and came and reported to their Lord all that had happened. And then summoning him, his Lord said to him, you wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not also have had mercy on your fellow slave in the same way that I have mercy on you? By the way, implicit in that is God has had mercy on you and I. We need to have mercy on our brothers and sisters who offend us in the same manner. You see? And verse 34, And his Lord moved with anger, handed him over to the torturers until he should pay all that was owed him. My heavenly Father will also do the same to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. <laughs> That's a tough parable to swallow. There must be, and we're going to learn this in the case of forgiveness as we go on. The one thing that is true about forgiveness <clears throat> is it must first always find its way into the heart of a genuine believer as something they are always willing to do before the circumstance is even dealt with. Did you hear that? You must have a heart that's always willing to forgive anyone who sins against you because that's the heart of God. And wow, it's great when the reconciliation, which is a transaction between two people, can occur. This is sometimes referred to as attitudinal forgiveness. You have the mindset of forgiveness. You are willing to forgive. And then, hopefully, there's the transaction of forgiveness where there's a meeting 
and you can express you're released. I see genuine repentance in you and I release you. You see. So we'll talk more about that as we go on. That's why this subject is such a huge part of reconciliation. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Is it? Are you obligated to give the forgiveness, and or, or I mean, like, should you? Because if that is continuing to allow that person to pursue ungodliness, like, yeah. it's not really kind. Yeah, I I believe, uh, Virginia, that there needs to be an exercise of discernment. You can't be foolish with this. In other words, that, um, you know, that you want to withhold. You see something clearly in him or her that indicates no real change of heart. I think there needs to be discernment and even counsel at that point. Like, we've we got to figure this out. Uh, but we have a passage in, let me show you in Luke chapter 17. Now, I know that this is a parable. Pardon me? I was just going to say, while you're looking that up, would you categorize confession that's motivated by a reward the same way that you categorize confession that's motivated by worldly sorrow? Say that again. Would you categorize confession that's motivated by a reward with, mm. like, the same as confession that's motivated by worldly sorrow? Like, basically, if a child, like, goes and steals a cookie and has chocolate all over their face and their parents see them, like, that's getting caught in the act. That's worldly sorrow. Yeah. But if a child steals a cookie but won't confess it won't confess it won't confess it the mom says i'll let you go play if you're just honest with me yeah that's a confession motivated by a reward is that that's still a worldly sorrow that's not a i've offended yeah what you got to get to virginia no matter what is the heart uh, in agreement that what had been done is wrong and sinful and yeah you don't want to reward behavior where it's not you know so you got that problem but this 17th verse here let me just show you now again he's speaking in illustrative or parabolic manner uh, so it's it's kind of a little hard but in Luke 17 um, sorry it's taken me a while to get there uh, verses uh, 3 and 4 uh, uh, would, you, would you back it up to verse 1 so we can get the context? He said to his disciples, It is inevitable that stumbling blocks come, but woe to him through whom they come. It would be better for him to have a millstone uh, were hung around his neck and he was thrown into the sea than that he would cause one of these little ones to stumble. If you're, be on your guard. Be, be careful. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times a day and returns to you seven times saying, I repent, forgive him. So that's where some take the point that uh, all that the person has to do is say, I repent. But from other portions of the scripture, remember that from the uh, explicit I need to get, or from the implicit I need to get explicit statements, 
there are explicit statements in the Bible to tell us that genuine repentance is needed. That these, we would assume that these were genuine. It's the same, maybe it's not, maybe it's not even the same offense. It doesn't necessarily say that it was the same sin. It could have been different kinds of sin. But I believe that there has to be a genuine repentance. You can't close the transaction. You can't, because uh, reconciliation is a transaction. You understand that? It's between two people, and you can't close it without a person being willing to forgive and a person who genuinely seeks your forgiveness. And sometimes that can take time, you see. Yeah. So we'll get into this more. Um, on the notes there, Chris uh, Bronze in his book, Unpacking Forgiveness. I meant to bring it with me today. Um, uh, but I, I would recommend that you get that book if you want. Uh, Chris uh, Bronze, uh, that's spelled uh, B-R-A-U-N-S. It's on the bottom of page five in the footnotes, Unpacking Forgiveness. Uh, it's very good. Uh, but he says in Unpacking for Forgiveness, he says it provides the, he provides the following definition. Forgiveness is a commitment by the offended to pardon graciously the repentant from moral liability and to be reconciled to that person. Although not all consequences are necessarily eliminated. So you are releasing them from a debt as God did with David. But God did not release David from the consequences of his sin. Consequences, by the way, can really serve us well. Um, this is one of the reasons why your culture is in turmoil. If you look in Ecclesiastes chapter 7, that's why your culture is in turmoil. I watched a man the other day, I guess he was on the LA freeway, and somebody uh, banged, in, banged the back of his car, and he had a really nice car, you know, like, like a Maserati or a Honda Accord like mine. You know. <laughs> and uh, when he pulled over, these thugs jumped out of the car and beat him up and took his car. And uh, there's a reason why that happens. If you look in Ecclesiastes chapter 8 and verse 11, now this was written 900 A.D., so this is old wisdom, not new wisdom. Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed quickly, therefore the hearts of the sons of men among them are given fully to do evil. So consequences are a deterrent. They're a, they're a teacher. Consequences are a great teacher. But they are also a deterrent, hopefully, to the continuance of sin. If you remove the consequences of people sinning, then you have let them free to sin without consequence. And your culture is constantly wanting to do that. It's the natural bent of fallen man. Um, I, I don't, I don't want to call making an appointment with the, an abortion doctor next Wednesday to abort my baby. I don't want to call it premeditated murder, I'd rather call it reproductive freedom. Do you, do you understand that? So we're constantly 
looking for ways to newly identify. That's the way our world is. Uh, we're trying to make excuses for the consequences of sin so we can avoid the consequences of sin. And yet consequences are a great teacher. They're a great teacher. Uh, and also, um, you know, they can be a deterrent, you know. I was reading about, in a book called Raising Your Children with Wisdom and Responsibility. What is it? Love and Logic. Yeah, Raising Your Children with Love and Logic. And, um, and he told a story about a dear lady. She had five kids. Her husband left her. And she was working very hard to teach her children to be responsible. So her uh, 11 or 12-year-old came to her and he said, Mom, uh, I really want a boom box. Some of you remember boom boxes, the big radio, things like that. Um, for you younger people, no. <laughs> um, so uh, she, they looked at it, how much it cost. It was like $50 for, in those days, a pretty reasonable one. And so she said, I'm going to use this as a means of teaching my son responsibility. He said, I'll pay you back if you buy it. So she went to the bank and got a blank loan form. And she had him fill it out. And, you know, he filled it out and she immediately said, I see here you have no collateral. What do you have, a bike and your clothes? I can't use your clothes. And so she was saying, if I'm a banker, I'm thinking you're get, this is kind of a risky, I may give it to you, but this is, I just want you to know, a banker's going to say, you have no collateral to support if you fail. So the deal was five bucks a month, you know, until the 50 bucks was paid. And he did it willingly, first two months. Third month, he missed. Fourth month, he missed. She sent him a letter. <laughs> and said if payment is not received now you owe me $15 if payment is not received your item will be repossessed he missed it again she took the bomb boom box and sold it in the garage sale oh that's terrible no it's the greatest thing she could have she really loves her son because that's real life isn't it isn't that real life? It's better to have him fail and alone when he's 12 years old and suffer the consequences than when he's 27 or 33. And I, I thought, well, that's it, because she was speaking. Him, there are consequences. If you, you have the money, but you use it for something else, and you don't pay the debt, then there's a consequence. So and then we tried with our son, my son Tony's bedroom, uh, I had to call the people from the federal government, you know, who come with the hazmat outfits to go and to look at his room when he was a teenager. It was really bad. So poor Cindy, you know, she gets sick and tired of looking at that way and she would straighten up. Well, we read in that book that what you should do is what the, you do in a real world. He had a job, a little part-time job. I think it was at Sears, wasn't it? So, uh, we said, okay, uh, Tony, if that room isn't cleaned up on Friday, mom is going to clean it up. But it's going to be for a charge. I think it was 40 bucks, wasn't it? How much? Uh, was it 40? $40? No. no. Well, that, that's the mother in you. 
I would say a hundred dollars. No, but was it twenty bucks? No, no, Sherry, it was ten dollars. Ten dollars. He was working a little part-time job. He was a, yeah. We said if the room wasn't clean by Friday, then he has to pay for maid service. Yeah, maid service. And I'd clean it, but he'd pay for maid service. He did that a couple of times, three or four times, and guess what he started doing? Cleaning up his room. Amazing. I took pictures of it. I said, there is a God. It's a miracle that happened in my son's heart. Evidence. So no, the point is that we were just trying to teach him that the real world has responsibilities. Uh, there was another couple he wrote about in the book where their teenage son would always stay up too late and he would miss the bus. And so mom or dad who had jobs would have to take him and, and bring him to school and all of that. And it, it was like happening in a routine manner. So she said, uh, he called his mom up at work and said, Mom, I missed the bus again. She said, yeah. Well, how am I going to get to school? She said they have things called cabs now. Of course, they have humor. Yeah, so, so you'll have to call a cab. Uh, by the way, you'll have to pay whatever that is. I'm not paying for that. And cured a kid. He got cured. He started waking up in enough time. So in other words, consequences can help. And um, it's, it's not always loving to protect people from consequences. I didn't know why I'm getting into parenting, but that's the, the danger of uh, a parachute parenting where you're always liberating your child from the consequence of their decision. You know, I know it feels like love, but it's not. It's you're removing responsibility from him, you know, if you or her, if they're not uh, suffering the kinds. Now, as long as it doesn't end in their life. Well, I told them. Uh, you know. <laughs> I said, this might kill you. Well, guess what? Now the other kids will learn. <laughs> you know, so it's, it, you don't let them risk their life. But I mean, on these minor issues, you know, that's... Uh, uh, I'm always amazed here when I drive down uh, through the neighborhood on the way to church sometimes, and it's like January and it's about 18 degrees outside, and there are teenage kids standing with shorts and no shirt whatsoever. I mean, no jacket. And I'm thinking, that is crazy. They're all like this. But they're cool. I mean, they're cold cool. <laughs> they look good. But the shaking has to go. I don't know, you know. But, uh, yeah. So, you know, I don't know why I got into that. Why did I get into that? No wonder I don't finish these things. Pat, it's your fault. You take it? All right. So um, let me just point out in my closing minutes here, that bottom paragraph on page 5, forgiveness is first modeled by our Lord who graciously pardons those who repent and believe in the saving work of Jesus Christ. The result of being forgiven is being reconciled to him. Keep in mind, God does not necessarily, necessarily relieve us of all consequences of our sins, but he does release us from our sin debt now and forever. Next page. Uh, My paper is so thick, I can't get this. I've never had this be happen before. 
Come on. All right, there you go. Uh, top of the page, true believers, having been forgiven of all their sins because of their repentance and faith in the saving work of Jesus Christ, must forgive others who recognize that they have sinned against you and have repented of their sins and are seeking forgiveness. And all of those passages would bear that out. But do you see the two passages in red there? One is from Ephesians, you see it? And then one is from Colossians. Let's just look at that. Um, in Ephesians 4, 31 and 32, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other. Now watch this. Just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. There is your model. There is your model. <coughs> never, never, never trust your own mind to sort out how to deal with relational conflict. Use the scripture. Depend on the scripture. Scripture tells you this is the way you forgive. In the same manner as Christ has forgiven you. Colossians 3, 12 through 13. So, as those who have been chosen by God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord has forgiven you, so also should you. So there's your pattern, your pattern of forgiveness. Now I'm going to get into that. I'm, next time we talk, I'm going to get into, well, what is God's pattern of forgiveness? I mean, this is my model. This is how I'm going to exercise forgiveness. What does it look like? So I want to make sure I get that. Um, I think at the, no, it's not at the top of page seven. Sorry about that. No, I'm going to just leave it right there. Um, there was something else I wanted to challenge you to do, but I won't till next week. So uh, come to uh, lesson number five next week, which is, uh, means I only have one more after that. So you could see why I, I did this big long paper. And when I'm done, I'm going to be talking for six weeks about the theology of Christmas. So we're gonna see if we can learn about what theologically comes from the whole story of Christmas. So um, I'll guarantee there's no drummer boys and no Santa Claus. <laughs> so I just want to tell you that at the, at the beginning. And no Reich's works righteous system. That's what Santa Claus operates on is a works righteous system. You better watch out, what? What's, I'm telling you why. Santa Claus is what, coming to town? He sees you when you're sleeping. He sees you when you're awake. He's omniscient. It's creepy. Yeah, it's creepy. So, <laughs> so all of you believed in Santa Claus. All of you did. Some of you still do. So, <laughs> all right. Thanks for being here. We got to get to the next part.